Welcome back to CME Anytime, brought to you by the Center for Medical Education. This month's podcast episode is a snippet from our high-risk emergency medicine course, The 10 Most Important Legal Questions Asked, presented by Dr. John Bedola and Dusty Otwell. To learn more about our CME programs, please go to our website, ccme.org. Enjoy this month's presentation. This is kind of a question and answer. We have our own uh, questions, the 10 most important legal questions. All these basic malpractice risk questions that we're going to run through and talk about. But uh, I encourage your questions as well. And if we get some, I'm going to call on you. I'm going to repeat your question. If we start getting too much into a rabbit hole, we're going to keep going. And then we're going to go till about 5.15, keep my eye on the clock, and then we'll ask one more question, then we'll be done for the day. So let's crank it up. Roger that. So we'll start with consent. We get a lot of questions about, hey, should we be getting consent for this, for that? So a couple of examples. Uh, you got a, a carpenter partially severs his index uh, fingertip with a saw, requires a distal digit amputation repair. Would you get a separate written consent here, John? Well, if you don't do a procedure very rarely and you think there may be a complication, uh, you definitely want to at least write it, uh, write a thorough note and uh, that you explain the risks and benefits. And I would say that <clears throat> if you're going to, especially if you're going to replant the distal digit, then you definitely want to get a consent. If you're just going to sew it and close it, then just document why you're sewing it and closing it or leaving it open. But pr procedures that you perform rarely, it's better to be more he heavy on the consent then. Yeah, I, I like that point. It, what about if we've got an abscess on the face requires IND? Separate so, consent? You don't really need to, but here, of course, it's a female and an abscess on her face, so you want to document a little bit more. The main thing to explain, of course, is that any time you cut on the skin, there's going to be a, there's going to be a, a scarring. Yeah. And there's no way to avoid that. And, and, and to your point, you know, when we get these questions about a separate written consent, I mean, I'm talking about some separate form that uh, we're going to have the patient sign as opposed to just documenting it in the medical record. And usually I try to reframe the conversation to, well, tell me about your medical record documentation in these cases. Maybe we want to add a written consent to it, but I'm really uh, more interested in the documentation in the medical record about the risk benefits alternatives rather than just the written consent. Now, usually the question comes about uh, uh, a CT. Should we be getting a separate CT consent? Do you get a separate written consent for CT in the places you work? No, definitely not. Um, no. And if say say they might be say they're pregnant, uh, then I would uh, document the risks and benefits. And essentially, what you have to do, generally speaking, with consents, and this includes the consent to discharge someone home, which is a consent conversation. I say that the risk of doing what you recommend they do is actually less than the option. So if you recommend a pregnant uh, lady get a CT, you just need to document it in your own mind, feel like the risk of not doing the CT is greater than the risk of doing the CT. Yeah, and it kind of return into my general point of, you know, I'm really looking for the documentation. Because when it comes to consent, I mean, just to when they come in, they sign a bunch of stuff. Most of the stuff you're doing uh, for these people has already been kind of squared away in the documentation they signed when they came in. So if something goes bad, I really want to see documentation about discuss with them the risk benefits and alternatives of 
CT, this abscess, uh, the finger thing. Um, and, and, and that is really going to help me create a narrative of they talked about it, the patient was well apprised, and things went south, but it's not their fault. Yeah. Hey, we have a question yeah. here. Yeah. Yes. That's, yes. A, a, that's a great question. So the question is, you know, we're talking about discussing the risk benefits and alternatives with the patient. Do you just document that, or do you have to put more? Um, I'd re return to your point and ask you to expand. It really depends on kind of what you're doing. What's the severity of it? How often do you do this thing? And, you know, some, sometimes you might want to give a lot more uh, right, yeah. detail. Right. Like, if, what are you thinking? Yeah, sure. If they're pregnant, I would definitely write a little bit more than I would for any kind of other thing. Uh, the other thing that, that goes with this is human beings are verbal and cooperative creatures. And so the very fact that you interacted with the patient and explained to them means a lot to them. Um, and uh, I've rarely seen a case, in fact, in, in large databases that I've searched, whenever there's a, a well-documented risk and benefits conversation, I've never seen a successful claim mm -hmm. in any of those. Yeah. Well-documented. Yeah. So transitioning the conversation from informed consent, these separate written consents, consent documentation, to shared decision-making. I think these things are related, but they're a little different. So I know you're a big disciple, shared decision-making. I hear yep. you say shared decision-making all the time. So how is that different than just informed consent and the informed consent conversation? Well, that's very good. So shared decision-making, um, informed consent is when you think that a certain direction is definitely better than another direction. Uh, so say, you know, you want to you, you wanna do a CT scan and there's some risk. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's some reset, but the risk of not doing the CT scan is greater. Shared decision-making is more when you have two options. Well, because right, you're not going to share in a decision that's bad, right? If it's good to do a CAT scan and bad not to do it, you're not going to say, well, we can not do it in that shared decision-making. You don't share in bad decisions. Shared decision-making is where you have more or less equivalent risk. So say you do the heart score, heart pathway, and the risk of having a MACE in six weeks is about 1%. Well, the risk of hospitalization is also about one one percent so that's the time where you have the conversation with the patient you say here's the two options the risk is close this is a situation where i don't have to where i can't tell you what the best is i can just tell you that both of these are approximately the same that's perfect for shared decision making because they get to choose what their options are so they can choose the risk of going home that's about one percent or the risk of being hospitalized which is about one percent so that's the key to shared decision making. That's what you use whenever the options are about equal. And I, I, I take the question of, you know, is writing risk benefits alternatives enough? And, and, and I think in some cases you want to put a little bit more detail depending on kind of what you're dealing with. But also then you, add, you can add in the shared decision making uh, uh, language and documentation uh, after discussing the risk benefits alternatives and the patient elects to do this. Uh, and we had a shared decision-making uh, conversation around it, and I agree oh, that's yes. reasonable. Yes, yes, yes. There's that kind of, yes. Anytime the patient says yes to what you say, you should write that down. Yes. <laughs> that's the more, more regular sort of, uh, I consent to what you're saying, shared decision-making versus the more sophisticated, we're in a, we're in a kind of a gray zone here, shared decision-making, and both are very protective. And, and, and uh, you mentioned uh, a CT of a pregnant patient. Yeah. Is that a, a potential case for shared decision-making or no? Um, yes, I think that you could, sh you, if the risk is approximately equal, I mean, if, if the patient clearly, mm. yeah, I would say yes. If the risk is high enough that you want to do a CT, but not so high, they should go straight to the OR, or if the risk of going to the OR is greater than the risk of CT, then I think you would do it as document what you recommend and why. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you clearly think 
it's more risky. See, the, okay, here's the beauty of it is we have this great fear of delving into the language and consent and all that stuff, but realize this is your home turf. You control the dialogue. You completely control how things work. And this is actually, should you should feel that this is your strong point. So if you really feel like the risk of not doing a CT is greater than the risk of doing a CT, then just recommend that and have them agree. If you're not sure if you're on the fence, then handle it that way. In other words, whatever you honestly feel, given your assessment, handle it as either they consent to what you recommend or you share the decision-making with them if there's no clear alternative. Because remember, it's not you taking a risk with your health, it's them taking a risk with their health based on your recommendations. Yeah, so kind of continue to extract uh, from the question and say, you know, now we're in this example of you're, you're giving a CT scan to a pregnant patient. Okay, discuss risk benefits alternatives. And then the key phrase I'm kind of hearing from you is shared decision making is a good uh, uh, tool when uh, both options are reasonable. The risk of both are roughly equal. So say, say we're in that situation, pregnant patient, CT, you know, the risks are roughly equal. Um, discuss with the patient risk benefits alternatives. Potential risks include, you know, uh, uh, the potential risks of a CT to a pregnant patient. You can list those out. Um, discussed uh, the risk on both sides. Uh, patient uh, elects to proceed, and we, discuss, we discussed in a shared decision-making conversation, patient elects to proceed with the CT. Now we're cooking. Right, now you've, right. got the, you've got the consent documentation. You've got the shared decision-making con- uh, documentation. And the thing I like about shared decision-making documentation is it is a, it's a description of the communication you have with the patient in which you both elected to proceed in a certain way that was not certain. There was acknowledgement of a risk in the uh, avenue that you went down. So what that allows me to do if something goes bad, I'm able to take that shared decision-making documentation and say, okay, so something did go bad. Well, let's continue the conversation. Let's keep, you know, a positive dialogue with the patients when we're trying to keep a claim from happening and describe what we can uh, answer your questions, tell you what happened, and then talk about what we can do now. As opposed to if the documentation just says, well, you know, and crudely stated, I'm the doctor and this is what we're going to do, and then it turns out to be, you know, quote, wrong. It's just, you know, less defensible. Yes, and also it's on the other end of that. It's not defensible to say patient declines. That that means nothing. They could have declined because you went up to them and said, you know, that CT is going to kill your baby. (laughs) So, you know, that's not really a consent conversation either. So um, to say declines, it's kind of like the alert and ordinary times four before an appropriate nor exam. It makes you feel good, but it's actually meaningless. You say... Uh, you have to say that, uh, you know, that if, say they decline admission or they decline a CT, the patient does not agree. Uh, well, if, they, if you share the decision, they should share decision making, the patient would rather elects to go home rather than get the CT and will come back if the pain gets worse. Or if it's admission, the patient would rather take the risk of going home than the risk of being in the hospital, which are approximately equal. But say they don't want to do what you recommend, then you have to document that they declined and that they declined understanding that the risk of what they're doing is higher. And I think yeah. we're going to get into that more, but yeah, yeah, yeah. foreshadow that. So that's shared decision-making. That's something we like to talk about a lot because it really gives me a lot of value in defending <clears throat> the cases. Huge. And think about it. How can someone sue you for a decision that we're part of? It's kind of weird, isn't it? No. We also get a lot of questions about APP supervision. It's a hot topic. It's been a hot topic. It continues to be a hot topic. It's usually... Uh, the question is usually phrased in you know terms of uh, I don't want to sign the charts 
uh, help me. Or, uh, you know, my site is starting to uh, utilize uh, more APPs and maybe the physicians are kind of worried about it. Can you help me work through uh, those issues with all the different team members? Well, I mean, it's a little bit more complicated than that. APP supervision is a complicated legal area. Uh, every state has their own regulations around APP supervision. The hospital policies and procedures are often very different from the state's regulations. Maybe a lot of them go a, a, a lot more uh, robust uh, in, in their policies and procedures around APP supervision. The different payers have different requirements for APP supervision. So this is why this area gets, gets kind of, uh, of complicated. And so um, we, we see a lot of different ways of approaching the issue of APP supervision. Now, if, if we were able to design the perfect system, if it were up to me, it would look something like um, every APP has a delegated supervising physician. There's a committee of supervising physicians and APPs who uh, review about 10% of the charts a month, and then they have some meetings to talk about uh, uh, performance improvement. Usually not how it works. So how do you see it working in, in some of the shops you work in, and what's your opinion? And yeah, what do you I, like I think you're, the system you're proposing is excellent for reviewing, but the ideal thing is to leverage the strengths of the APP and the physician together. And so uh, the risk of APPs and physicians is about the same. They miss slightly different things. And APPs are, have a harder time with really subtle cases where there's multiple little kind of things that don't quite fit together right. In physicians, we tend to take shortcuts and go around things like uh, perk rules and things like that. So if you put those two things together, you're really pretty bulletproof. Um, so the key there is to communicate well. And the, when you look at risk across the landscape, where do, where do APPs have risk? Well, they don't have risk based on the patients that they see. They have risk based on what is the setup in the ED they're functioning in. So if they're in an ED where they're separated by 20 miles, where they, there's unfriendly, where they can't communicate well, that's where the risk is going to be. And so, uh, it's a fact of it's a it's a done deal that this is going to be a significant part of our of our emergency departments no matter where we practice and so you can take that and you can make it function well or you can make it function poorly. I find them to be extremely valuable and I think of it a little bit more like the way uh, I think of it more the way I interact with uh, with uh, with residents where we're all working together and there's like a third year resident, I pretty much, I feel comfortable with 99.5% of what that resident does. And so effective communication is the key. That's my soapbox. I think we didn't want to get so much into the soapbox, but yeah, uh, that's the key. No, no, I appreciate that. Because when, when we get a lot of these questions about APP supervision, um, in, in, in some of the uh, physicians in particular on the front lines who maybe think that, you know, this is a change that they're not uh, particularly comfortable with, um, uh, the lines I've started to memorize are, okay, well, APPs are a fact of life. This is a team approach now. It is not just the physician who just kind of comes in on a magic carpet and says, you're sick and you're not, and they're the captain of the ship. It's a team approach now. The world has changed. The more you resist that, first of all, the more uncomfortable you're going to be because change is going to continue to happen. However, if you bring an attitude of negativity to it, if you approach the team approach of APP and physician as an unsafe situation, you're not comfortable with it, you don't like it, they're here to take our jobs, you are going to create the kind of non-collaborative environment that is a self-fulfilling prophecy that will make the situation dangerous. And I've seen it before that these you know, physicians kind of resist um, the team approach, creates a non-collaborative environment, 
there's a bad outcome that happens is they say, see, I told you, APPs were dangerous. No, APPs aren't dangerous. It's all about the process. By that logic, physicians are dangerous. The ER is dangerous. It's all about having a good collaborative process between the physicians and the APPs. Now, I'll turn that around a little bit and not just come down on the physicians entirely. APPs as well, you know, you are an advocate for the patient as well. And sometimes, you know, you have to get over the hump as well and bridge the divide with the physicians who maybe they're not too sure about this, maybe this is new for them. Well, you need to say, hey, no, I, I really need you to see this this patient, and if they, they say, no, don't worry about it, well, that's a problem. That's a problem maybe you can address in that instance, but also a problem you need to address globally with leadership to say, hey, this isn't quite working, and because patients will be harmed in that situation over time if you don't have a good collaborative environment when it comes to APP supervision. That's really good, Dusty. I think, and pointing out, they, it, it, is, it is, takes a team, so, and you have to get used to the fact that if, if you're going to want to, if you're going to practice at the top of your license, uh, then you know when I practice at the top of, of mine, sometimes I'm I'm in situations where I need some help, and I'll reach out to a colleague or I'll call a system we call Failsafe. And if this collaborative approach, you will have to get used to the fact that sometimes what you think is going to be incorrect. But the benefit of that is that you're you're working in a team. You're going to miss much fewer stuff, and actually, the relationship between doctors and APPs is that not actually additive; it's actually synergistic because you stack us right. We're not going to between us. Our different skill sets are going to make sure we don't miss. We we miss almost nothing, which is pretty amazing. And tomorrow, I'll talk about some documentation tips for uh, APPs and physicians, and what to document when you collaborate. Now we'll get into a a more kind of legal issue. Uh, duties to third parties. You know, this comes up from time to time. You see somebody driving off drunk, or um, maybe they come in, they've had a seizure, work them up, discharges his wife. Uh, a month later, they're driving, seizes again, um, severely injures somebody. You sue the physician. Um, is the physician liable in that situation? We've been through this so many times. I'll ask you, counselor, is the <laughs> physician liable in that situation a month later? Um, <laughs> well, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I've learned, I've learned this one from you, Dusty, but uh, essentially, unless there's a specific person that's going to be harmed, you can't protect the entire world from someone, mm -hmm. uh, from someone who's going to have a seizure. Yeah. Um, so, but say someone is, uh, yeah, so you can't protect the entire world. So there's a duty to inform when there's a specific person who might be harmed. Yeah. Um, and there's a famous case that I think you're going to refer to, the California case. Yeah, um, yeah. So... And when it's a specific person, the key is foreseeability. Foreseeability is a very important term in the law because it, as a society, we don't hold each other accountable, that is liable, for harm to each other unless the harm was foreseeable. Otherwise, how can we improve our behavior if we're liable we hurt people who we had no idea would have been hurt? And there was a case called the Tarasoff case in uh, California in which a young man was uh, at a psychiatric hospital um, talking to his therapist and said, yeah, there's this, this girl, Tarasov, and I'm in love with her, and as soon as y'all let me out, I'm going to kill her. And, and they, they, at that time, there uh, was no ability for them to warn that girl without breaking confidentiality. So they didn't, and he killed her. And they, uh, the family sued uh, the California Board of Regents. You know, this, it was a state hospital. And they won. And in that case, the California Supreme Court said um, because of the uh, you know, very clear uh, foreseeable, foreseeability 
in the identity of the victim, um, these uh, medical professionals had a duty to warn. They had a duty to do something to prevent this foreseeable tragedy from taking place. Now, and that does vary from state to state. Um, in Texas, where you're from, John, you know you can't, you can't warn the victim, but you can call the police. I believe, right. And you can only call the police, correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah. So it, it varies a bit. But if you're dealing with somebody who says, you know what, I just can't take it anymore. I've had it with Trump, and I'm just going to go, you know, I'm going to go cause some havoc. Okay, yeah, you might want to think about talking to this person. Maybe they're unstable. Maybe there's a, a hold that can be considered. But there's no foreseeable uh, uh, target. But if somebody says, you know, I've had it with those hippies down on Congress Avenue Bridge, and later today I'm going to go. I'm going to go take them out. Uh, okay, now you've got a foreseeable uh, victim. There's something you should do there. And in Texas, you would call the police. That's right. And also, just you know, there's gray zones where you're not sure if you can, uh, if if. Well, actually, we'll get into psych stuff later. Never mind. Yeah, no, yeah, we'll yeah. cover we'll, that later. We'll we'll get into it now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so if foreseeability is pretty easy when you're talking about murder. Um, another one before we get into this one. What if, uh, what if you got a drunk, what, a, a drunk person, yeah. um, and, and you, know, you can't hold them, let them go, uh, and they hop in their car and they drive away. Okay. Can you notify anybody without uh, Yeah, so that's a really good one. So if someone, if you're evaluating someone and you're sure you can take away their civil liberties, do it. If you're not sure, don't do it, but if it's a gray area and they leave, then you just call the police and have the police bring them back to continue the evaluation. The specific case, if you see a, if a drunk person leaves your ED and you do not, and he's not so incapacitated that you can't hold him, well, he can just tip out the door. But if you see him get into a car, then you call, but not because it's a medical thing, but because he's violating the law. And so right. you call for a violation of the law. So that's how you can call the police for that. Right, right, right. In, 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 in that situation, you're acting... Uh, not in violation of HIPAA as a medical provider, you're acting as a bystander. You're saying, hey, police, I saw this drunk guy get in a car. Now, if you say, and he's got this STD, I'm going to tell you about as well because it's a doozy, <laughs> that's a problem. That, now you're getting into HIPAA, HIPAA yeah, violations. Yeah. But just the facts of, I saw a crime being committed, that's, that's not a HIPAA violation. Right. It's, right. Not med right. it's not medically protected. Yeah. Now, speaking of, so yeah, so when it comes to foreseeability, when it comes, about, comes to, uh, to third parties, you know, what, what about, yeah, sexually transmitted diseases, that sort of stuff. You know, the guy um, coming in with genital herpes, girlfriend says a year later, now I got it, you should have told me, um, uh, you're, you're liable here. Now, um, kind of just going through the, uh, the exercise, okay, was this a foreseeable, foreseeable victim? It looks like you didn't even know she existed at the time. Right. Yeah. yeah. So without it being a, a foreseeable victim, there, there's no way a physician could be or, or a clinician could be held liable in this situation. There's a good traditional rule in medical malpractice law that, that there is no potential liability until there's a duty created by the physician-patient relationship. Traditionally, the physician-patient relationship is created when you physically touch a patient. That's been eroded, evolved a bit, you know, by, by kind of the changing nature of medicine, with telemedicine, with phone calls, with on-call physicians. Um, but still, that is a premise we can bring up in malpractice cases. So in this case, no physician-patient relationship. You never even saw this person. Now, that doesn't mean you should not do anything at all when this gentleman comes in. Um, I imagine you would, uh, 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 this might be a reportable 
condition to Correct. the county health department? Correct. So, yeah, yeah disease, there's a set of reportable disease, and it doesn't have to be an STD, of course. It can be tuberculosis, tuberculosis, diphtheria, a variety of ones. So uh, there, these are public health concerns. They're just not concerns related to a specific person that you can identify. Uh, so you notify the health department when it's a and in some state and in some jurisdictions and it varies state by state, county by county. It may be a reportable disease. It may not. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, and I like the risk mitigation tool of uh, you know counseling them on informing their their partners. Is that something you just hand them or do you talk to them or or kind of what do you do? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I work in a hospital that uses a system called Meditech that hands people basically a, a book about that thick for a sore throat. So <laughs> I think that that's not meaningful. I think when you you know again, I said human beings, you know, we are cooperative verbal creatures and so when talking to someone no matter how brief is better than just throwing a bunch of instructions on them so all right uh difficult patients is kind of a catch-all kind of incendiary word to me for basically patients who don't want to do what you want them to do and there's a wide spectrum of these patients um and here here's a here's a good example fella comes in for chest pain QDMI and ECG wants to go home despite your adamant recommendation that he be admitted. So you got you've got an AMA situation here, right. just full on AMA. Now, and, and let's let's talk about first the difference between informed refusal and AMA. Now, AMA, you want them to be hospitalized, and they say no, I am leaving. As opposed to informed re refusal, kind of what's the difference there? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, in a certain sense, they don't really matter because they're both a, a matter of informed refusal. Just, but just for purposes of your hospital and quality and a variety of tracking things, AMA is considered different and is considered more negative to your hospital and to your contract. So it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really matter in terms of the legal part of it, whether you sign someone out against medical, uh, when, when you have a refusal of care versus against medical advice. But you only want to use against medical advice when it involves hospitalization just for purposes of tracking to your hospital. But generally speaking, uh, the key to uh, the key to these is so. In other words, AMA is just a subset of refusal of care that involves hospitalization. To limit your liability, what you have to do is show that the patient is capable of understanding the risks, that they are fundamentally capable of understanding, and that they understand those specific risks associated with what they're doing, and versus the benefits of what you're offering, and then that you gave them some alternatives. So. They refuse to be admitted. Okay, you refuse to be admitted. Well, I did a mental statics exam, and you're capable of understanding that there's a small chance of dying from this MI. The second thing is uh, that uh, that you understand that, and that you understand that uh, that I'm offering you something that's going to mitigate that. The third part is you offer an alternative. Okay, you don't want to be admitted. Will you at least take an aspirin and see a cardiologist? And here's the name of a cardiologist that you can see in 24 hours, or you can come back. And then you document that you did all of that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that you, you have to sign an AMA. Again, we get all worried about this. But just remember, this is your home turf. The chart is your home turf. And you can't control anything in this world, but you can control how good the chart looks. So you write all that down. I personally don't sign it unless the hospital requires that I sign an AMA form. Yeah, AMA forms uh, get a lot of get a lot of questions about those, um, and I think there's a a, a a popular misconception that AMA forms are a get out of jail free card. 
Um, yeah, like there's this, uh, what's that thing I just said, like the AMA fairy, you take the AMA form and you put it under your pillow and you expect to get a dollar, but really the AMA fairy takes your wallet. Because if you put all of your eggs in the basket of the AMA form, you're going to miss out on a lot of good strategies to mitigate your risk in a situation like we're talking about where they say, nope, I am leaving. There's a good example that you had in Texas, and it was, it was the same case of the MI. He was an older gentleman, though. Um, he was a rough old bird from up northwest of Austin. And uh, they said, dude, you're having, a, you're having a heart attack. You need to come in. And he just said, nope, you know what? Pass. <laughs> I've had enough. I've had a good life, and I'm out of here. And the, and the doctor's like, dude, you're going to die you know, if, if you don't come in. And so it brought in all of these uh, uh, strategies. Uh, and I was proud because they did it even, even before they called me. So they, they called uh, so another physician. All the nurses come in there and talk to this fella. They get uh, the family members in the room. They say, who are the other family members, the immediate family members we need to talk to? Get, they get them on the phone. They're documenting all this stuff. They call hospital risk management. They're savvy to the situation. They come down. They break out their forms. And then after you know, all is said and done, you know, I kind of think got to have a little uh, respect for this fella, but he just walks out the front door hand in hand with his daughter, and I like to think he was wearing a cowboy hat and like a tumbleweed was going by, and the sun's going down, because he just walked out, you know, to his death and did it with his boots on. Now, that's patient autonomy, you know, but to protect yourself, especially from the son who wasn't there, what you're going to do, you're going to use all those strategies uh, in a difficult AMA situation like that. Yeah, you're right, Dustin. And any time I've had someone that is refusing something that really doesn't make any sense, I bring their family in. And 99 times out of once the family's in, my job is done. They convince the patient, and I don't have to spend an hour doing it. Yeah. So. And they, but if the family agrees, then that's definitely the right thing. Did, was there a question? Yeah. What about a patient that, that, that are? Uh, well, definitely, yeah. Not, I mean, that yeah. Are not yeah. The best yeah. Yeah. So the question. You want, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Well, yes. Yes. So the two points are, would you offer an alternative? The answer to that is yes, offer them the next best alternative. So if they don't want to be admitted to have their appendix out, uh, then you know what? The Finnish study showed that maybe some people do okay, send them out on antibiotics, bring them back in 24 hours for a recheck and a rescan. That's not ideal, but that would be reasonable. The second part is, do you document? So it depends on... So as I've gotten wiser and I've practiced longer, I've realized that, again, I'm going to say this one more time, this is my home turf. I am not, I'm, I practice with amazing clinicians like Dr. Baugh back there and Tiffany Bogus, APP, I'm, and, and they're amazing and I'm not, I'm pretty good, but I'm certainly not as, as fast as they are, but I've never been, had any problem. And it's because the chart is my home turf. I control it. I control how it looks. I write good narratives. And it, and, it beca- and it also comes from the heart and it expresses what I really think. So I think if you feel self-assured or if you, if, and you feel confident and you feel like you're golden, don't, get it, don't sign it, just write what you did. If you want to get extra coverage, then go ahead. It depends on how you feel about it. So, so what would you write if, if you are okay with that, oh, yeah. that, that lesser oh, yeah, treatment? Right. Okay. So the three simple ones, the patient understands, he's capable, he knows that, his, that according to my recommendations that what he's doing is more risky than what I recommend, offered him this alternative, uh, and he is going to come back. He will follow this, and he'll come back in 24 hours. I give him some reasonable thing. Yeah? What do you do with a patient that just 
that's it. Leads are coming off. I'm walking. Oh, that's very screw good. Screw you guys. I'm, what do you do with the patient who says, yeah. screw you guys, I'm going home? Okay. That's a good one. Okay. You want to take it? <laughs> or, okay. I want you to take okay. it. I love this one. Okay. Because this one, what I write is the patient unilaterally severed the doctor-patient relationship. Because, and so in other words, you don't say, I let him go. I did this, I did that, severed the rela- I did not, and, and you write, he unilaterally uh, severed the doctor-patient relationship. I did not have the ability, I, did not ha- I do not feel like I have the ability to physically restrain him and take away his civil liberty. Yeah. So in other words, if someone does that, and they're high, and they're crazy, okay, no, you still have to, I mean, well, you don't have to, but someone's got to try to tackle the guy, okay? Bring him, you know, keep him, but if he's not, let him tip out the door. You cannot take away his civil liberty. We will always, no matter what Bernie Sanders say, always be a center-right country. Always have been, always will be. Center-right. And so civil liberty is your, is if there's anything such as a, a magic bullet that you could put in your chart, say, I do not have the ability to take away his civil liberty guaranteed by the Constitution. The Constitution in there. So, so like a true Texan. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, that's one part. Um, and so then, yeah, you don't restrain him, you don't tackle him. Um, I, I, would, yeah. I would add, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the documentation lecture tomorrow, but um, objectively describe what happened. You know, yeah, yeah patient left, said the but if they literally ripped them off, describe that. And if they, you know, threw a few choice words at you on their way out the door, which they probably did, go ahead and write them down and, and yeah. just objectively describe what happened. And on the back end, Call the guy the next day or have, the, have someone call him and say, we'll, we'll call him, we'll see how he's doing. Because yeah. if you can always, no matter what happens, if you show that you're kind of the, you know, the, the white knight or the, yeah. the, good, the, you know, the white hat in the, in the western, you'll, you'll be fine. Let's, we're going oh. to keep cranking and we'll have time and we'll end a little early. But yeah. I, I definitely want to have time for... for yeah. uh, and we have one question there. Well, well, let's keep... Let's keep yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll grab it at the end. Let's okay. transition from... So you're talking about your interaction with patients, interactions with other physicians. I definitely want to get the benefit of your experience because what I see a lot of times is, is younger physicians getting bulldozed by older... We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. To learn more about our educational products, please go to ccme.org. Bye for now.